Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from local municipal concerns to state and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchik. Co-hosting with me today is Rich Larson. Rich, on today's program, we are going to discuss shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. The state of Minnesota and the Great Lakes, of course, have a rich shipping history. But on the seabed of those lakes are thousands of wrecks, 550 known major wrecks at the bottom of Superior alone. And it, it is in these waters, the final resting place for some 30,000 mariners. We're fortunate to have as guests Corey Adkins and Bruce Lynn from the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum and the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, uh, located on Lake Superior at Whitefish Point in the eastern upper peninsula of Michigan. Joe, you know the uh, if the sailors all say if they put uh, 10 more more miles behind them, they'd have made Whitefish Bay, right? <laughs> Uh, sorry we're going to talk about shipwrecks but also about uh, preventing shipwrecks and that uh, the balance between exploration and discovery of shipwreck sites while respecting those sites as the final resting place for sailors among other interesting topics rich at some point we will get to gordon lightfoot judging from the five minutes of conversation we had with at least one of our guests beforehand. We're going to talk some music on this show today. Uh, guest Corey Adkins, Adkins is the, uh, the content and communications director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck uh, Historical Society. Before he took on this role, Adkins worked for 23 years at a CBS affiliate in northern Michigan. He's won dozens of awards, including 13 Emmys and two Murrows. Moving from broadcasting to communications has been an eye-opening experience for Adkins. In one year, his press releases have garnered international attention from CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, and the New York Times, all related to the interesting and important work done at the Shipwreck Historical Society. (coughs) About creating and writing press releases, Corey has said, I have found that bringing personality to press releases and transforming them into stories has made them extremely successful. Readers are attracted to stories, not just press releases. As a journalist and somebody who depends on press releases, I could not agree with Corey more. Corey is looking forward to telling much more superior lore of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society and making the society a national leader for the telling of Great Lakes Shipwreck stories. Outside of work on Great Lakes Shipwreck exploration and history, Atkins also uh, like, likes nature, spending time with his wife, Stephanie, and music. Corey would really like, uh, like us to know in Bob Seger's uh, song, Roll Me Away, where 12 hours of, oh, he would really like to know where 12 hours out of Mackinac, Mackinac City is. It has to be somewhere in Minnesota, right? All right, Corey, welcome to Public Policy this week. 
<laughs> How you doing, Rich and, and uh, Joe? Thanks, thanks for having us. And I, I I crossed the Mackinac Bridge a lot because I lived down in McBain, Michigan, which is by Cadillac. And every time I cross that bridge, I I think of that song "Roll Me Away" by Bob Seger. And I've heard twelve hours out of Mackinac City, somewhere in Minnesota. So we're you know we're all tied together by a Bob Seger song somehow, right? <laughs> I think Joe and I were just talking about this too. Uh, we think it might actually be in Rochester. That that bar might be where where the Mayo Clinic is. I, I think we think that 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 <laughs> Bob Seger picked up that girl in Rochester, Minnesota. Oh well, I'd love to know. So yeah. if anybody can uh, can, can uh, email me Corey at shipwreckmuseum dot com with the <laughs> with the actual answer. Please do. All right. Uh, our second guest is Bruce Lynn, the executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. Bruce, a U.S. Army veteran, started his museum career as a historical interpreter at Fort Mackinac on Mackinac Island in 1989 and later returned to work 10 years full-time for the Mackinac State Historic Parks. After graduating with a degree in American History and Criminal Justice from The Ohio State University, Lynn was accepted in Eastern Michigan University's Historic Preservation Graduate Program where he studied heritage interpretation before graduation from EMU, Lynn completed an internship at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum and developed a real passion for Great Lakes maritime history. During Bruce's career, he has worked at the Alfred P. Sloan Museum in Flint, Michigan, the Piat Castles in West Liberty, Ohio, and was hired by the Ohio Historical Society to assist with the creation of an economic impact survey of historic sites for the Ohio State Legislature. In 2011, he was hired as the executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, which consists of the National Historic Site at Whitefish Point and the historic U.S. Weather Bureau building at Locks Point in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. In 2015, Bruce Lynn co-authored with award-winning Great Lakes maritime photographer Chris Winters the book The Legend Lives On, a richly illustrated meditation on the Edmund Fitzgerald Bruce is married to his wife, Jill, a veterinarian in Sault Ste. Marie, where they live on a farm with their four chow-chows. Bruce Lynn, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you, Joe, very much. Thanks, uh, Joe and Rich, uh, for having Corey and I on the program. And I'm actually located in Sault Ste. Marie. I'm a little bit north of Corey, a few hours. And, uh, you know, I'm looking out. I'm, I'm actually on our farm at this point. We've got a farm that we've been doing some restoration work on. Uh, and I'm looking out and I'm not really seeing any snow on the ground right now, uh, which makes us all very happy uh, up here in the Sioux. I don't know out there in Northfield if you have anything on the ground, but we've had kind of a weird winter and our snow suddenly just disappeared very quickly. So it's, uh, you know, we don't have any grass or anything like that growing, but we're looking forward to a nice summer and a lot of people coming up to visit the Shipwreck Museum for sure. It was snowing sideways this morning here. I think that's appropriate for any discussion about it. It was the, it the was snow, yeah, and it, it was one of those. T- in fact, if we're going to talk about things like the Edmund Fitzgerald, yep. it was snowing sideways five minutes ago. The storm came up incredibly quickly and then disappeared. Just that, and now the sun's out. It's just it's weird. Uh, Bruce, I I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sault Ste. Marie, it's not in Canada. It's well, it is, but it's not. So okay. <laughs> there, there. Are, I hesitate to call them twin cities because they're really not like each other that much. But 
the St. Mary's River separates Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario and Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Okay. Uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Marie, Michigan, quite a bit smaller. There's only about 15,000 residents where I think Sioux, Ontario has closer to 80,000. So, so, Rich, you're right. Uh, there is a Sioux, Ontario, but obviously a Sioux, Michigan as well. All right. All right. And and if Corey, I, I apologize if I don't ask a couple of questions uh, real quick and get this out of my system. I'm not going to be able to concentrate for the show. For the, you are you are a music guy. Are you a musician yourself, sir? Uh, I'm a I'm a uh, mediocre at best uh, acoustic guitar player. And, and uh, I wanted to play bass for Van Halen when I was growing up and you know we all went, we got, all went through that I think phase. I got a better job now <laughs> clearly you and I I think could uh, could have a great uh, a, a great friendship sir because I also am a mediocre acoustic guitar player growing up I wanted to be Bruce Springsteen so oh. I <laughs> and I uh, I have to say uh, you're a Michigan guy with with the exception of one exceptionally outspoken guitar player from Michigan I have never come across uh, a Michigan musician that I don't enjoy tremendously so uh, we have a state full of great musicians you and, do uh, um, yeah our some of our local people around here are, should be uh, known nationwide but. That's for another discussion. It is. And, and <laughs> I actually do a music uh, music show, Corey. I might have to come have you come back on that sometime. All right. Oh, I'm in. Let's talk about shipwrecks and stuff. Yeah, let's first talk about your operations at Whitefish Point. You have the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, visited by over 100,000 tourists each year. You have the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society that owns a 47-foot boat, the RV David Boyd. And you have an operational lighthouse that was built in 1861 that has been in service ever since. A few questions for you. What is the mission of the Historical Society? And how do you put the RV David Boyd to use? Uh, Bruce, why don't you start us off? Sure, yeah. So, you know, in a nutshell, the mission of the Shipwreck Society, and I, I bear with me for a little bit here as I go back to our beginnings, really the Back in 1978, the organization, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society started, and it was really a focus on discovering shipwrecks in the area. You know, we have roughly 200 shipwrecks right in the area of Whitefish Point alone, um, and there's a lot of reasons for those wrecks being out there. But, but the organization really started with scuba divers and teachers, historians, and looking for these wrecks and documenting them. And so that was really the foundation of the organization. Obviously, we've we've grown quite a bit since then, taking on a national historic site being Whitefish Point, uh, where the Whitefish Point Lighthouse is, and that's where the museum itself is located as well. Uh, but our mission still revolves around that underwater research aspect. That's such a big part of what we do, but it's arguably the least visible part of what we do, too, at least for the actual operations of our vessel going out there and searching for these shipwrecks. But we have had a lot of luck in recent years, and we I know we'll be talking about that as the interview goes on. Uh, the museum itself, we have a dozen shipwrecks roughly represented there. The Edmund Fitzgerald, of course, being the one that most people are familiar with. But, you know, there's over 6,000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, so we like to talk about a lot of these other wrecks, too. And, and we, we, a lot of us will like to say that every one of these shipwrecks in its own way is like the Edmund Fitzgerald. And, and when I say that, you know, you think of every every crew, every ship that left port that never came back, every one of those ships did have a crew 
you know, these were uh, primarily uh, men that were going to work, but there were a number of women on these wrecks as well. But they were doing their jobs. And uh, in, tragically, in a lot of cases, they never came home. So in that sense, they're not a whole lot different than the Fitzgerald. There's a lot of stories to tell with each one of these shipwrecks. And Corey, Corey our content and communications director, does such a great job of telling those stories. But we also do that storytelling up at Whitefish Point as well. And that's partly in our main gallery where their shipwrecks are represented, but we also tell the stories of the Lighthouse Service and the Life Saving Service and even a U.S. Coast Guard lifeboat station that was up, up at Whitefish Point from the 1920s through the 1950s. We are a seasonal operation. We're going to be opening up on May 1st. We've got all of our staff coming back and getting ready to go. And, you know, there's a lot of excitement. We have a lot of new things happening up there. And, and guys, I feel like I could drone on for a while. But yeah, that uh, in a nutshell, that'll kind of give you an idea of who we are and what we do. Corey, is that lighthouse still in operation at Whitefish Point? Uh, when did that begin? When did that start? And uh, what? tell us a little bit about what the importance of a functioning lighthouse is in that particular area, the shipwreck coast of Lake Superior. Well, the the lighthouse that's there right now has been in um, operation since 1861. Um, we, there was one there that was built in 1849, torn down, and, and the one that is there now um, is, you know, it's been there for, for that long. The importance of uh, Whitefish Point is when vessels would be coming up from the Sioux or downbound from, uh, say, Duluth, uh, Whitefish Point is a critical turning point for all vessels going from Lake Superior into Whitefish Bay or mm -hmm. Whitefish Bay into Lake Superior. So the, uh, uh, say a lot of people a lot of ships that were running from a storm in lake superior were trying to get past that critical turning point into whitefish bay where there's safety from storms sometimes uh, <laughs> because there are a lot of uh, shipwrecks in whitefish bay too but um that is why they put that uh light there it was because to warn vessels of that point and that's where you turn to you know to head west or to, to, you know, to head down to the Sioux. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Just a few hours uh, up the interstate, interstate from our studios in Northfield, Minnesota, are the harbors of, of Duluth and Superior, Wisconsin. Uh, in fact, from Duluth, you can make it um, by ship all the way to the Atlantic Ocean via the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway, 2,340 miles. For our listeners, Guys, why is Great Lakes shipping so important to our economy and our history? And what are, what are, the, what are we shipping on, on the Great Lakes? What, what are the, uh, the things that we're, uh, we're putting on boats and sending, uh, sending away? So, Corey, I don't know if you want me to take this one, or maybe I can start and you can pick up a little bit. Um, if we look at that question historically, uh, there's a lot of major... I guess you think about the development of the United States and the lakes really arguably are like a big highway system. Mm -hmm. And before these roads were cut through, you know, places like northern Michigan and Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and, you know, getting out to Wisconsin and Minnesota, it was so much easier to transport not only settlers, you know, people that were uh, settling these communities that were growing in these port towns on the Great Lakes, uh, but also those raw materials that were soon after discovered. You know what? What most people will automatically start 
thinking of if they have a knowledge of shipping on the Great Lakes would be iron ore, you know, taconite these days. So a lot of that is coming out of places like Duluth uh, and Two Harbors and, you know, even Marquette and a number of other places, uh, you know, on the North Shore, too. So you have those cargoes coming and going today, but those aren't the only ones, obviously. Um, it's not just iron ore. You know, you have grains that are being shipped. Uh, we have ocean-going ships that are coming up the St. Lawrence Seaway and getting into the Great Lakes and coming all the way up through uh, the Sulox and out into Lake Superior and, again, out to Duluth and S Superior. Coal is another uh, another big one that's being uh, shipped on the lakes. And then also... Uh, uh, limestone, and, and there's a number of other cargoes, but really the biggest at this point is the iron ore. And if you look at that, again, historically speaking, and Corey just referenced our lighthouse being built there at Whitefish Point in 1861. One of the reasons that lighthouse was built was because there was an understanding that there was probably going to be a civil war in the United States. So a lot of that iron ore for the steel and copper also that was coming out of the Keweenaw area of uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula was being shipped on Lake Superior and down to the lower lakes. And there was a need for an aid to navigation in the form of a lighthouse that was reliable. That first lighthouse built in the late 1840s wasn't going to last, but it, Whitefish Point really is just one of a whole chain of aids to navigation uh, that go along with all that shipping and all those cargoes that are coming back and forth. Think of World War II, the arsenal of democracy, Think again of that iron ore, uh, much of that coming out of Lake Superior that really fueled that, uh, as FDR called it, the arsenal of democracy. So critically important to the development of the nation. And uh, uh, unfortunately, those wars uh, that have occur occurred, but to keep, uh, you know, really keep, keep that steel moving and keep the production going. So it all kind of ties together historically, but even now. Uh, so much of our steel industry on the Great Lakes relies on that taconite. It's okay. uh, passing Whitefish Point uh, pretty much every day during the shipping season. Mm -hmm. And just to, to add, uh, you know, Bruce talked about the history there, but even today when a storm blows up in Lake Superior uh, during the fall, spring, you know, whenever there is a storm, they'll these big freighters, 1,000-foot freighters, you know, hundreds of feet uh, long freighters will still hide in Whitefish Bay from mm -hmm. these storms. So you can you can sit uh, out on our, <clears throat> out on the beach by Paradise or at Whitefish Point, and sometimes see eight freighters anchored in, waiting out a storm. So, um, uh, and most uh, most of those vessels are carrying iron ore. So it's it's still a testament even to this day in 2023. Interesting. Uh, Prepping for the program today, I was reading about various Great Lakes shipwrecks. Couldn't get enough of them. One wreck was particularly grisly. It would have occurred quite a bit west of you in the area of the Apostle Islands, where a ship named the Lucerne sank in a November storm in 1886. As the ship took on water and heavy seas and began to go under, the crewmen began to scale the masts to stay out of the frigid waters. It was there, high on those masts, that the crewmen were located the next day, frozen to the mass, covered in ice. The shipwreck, shipwrecks we're, we're going to talk about seem to have something in common, the weather. Gentlemen, Bruce, why don't you start? Could you comment on Lake Superior weather and its influence on shipwrecks? Absolutely, yeah. You know, Joe, we talked about that a little bit yesterday. Uh, Lake Superior is, you know, in my mind, it's the most beautiful of the Great Lakes, but that's that's me. You know, I don't know how impartial I am in that area, but 
part of that beauty is how dramatic the weather is and how how quickly it can change. And you know, it's one thing if you're inside of your cabin and you've got a fire, you know, going in the fireplace and it's nice and cozy and warm and you can look outside and see those massive waves rolling in. Uh, but sometimes you have to think about those ships that are still out there on the lake. And like Corey was saying, it's not unusual to see a 1,000 foot super freighter out there anchored, you know, out in Whitefish Bay and waiting for the storm to pass. Definitely so much of, of the uh, stories of shipwreck and those that we tell at the museum are heavily influenced by the weather. And that could be everything from, from a, a storm that blows up 35 foot waves, like those which sank the Edmund Fitzgerald, to snowstorms which reduced visibility that, that you know had ships running aground and had those lighthouses you know had their fog signals going because obviously nobody's going to see a light up at a lighthouse uh, but you know fog fog settles out over whitefish point in a lot of areas in whitefish bay that could cause collision so many of the wrecks that we tell the stories of in the museum gallery itself are collision so there's there's a lot of different ways that the weather impacted this shipping you know, today we think of these shipwrecks, or we think of the ships, let me put it that way. We think of the vessels that are operating. They have uh, technology that helps them to either know what the weather is going to do and, and much better than those skippers and captains would have known maybe 100, 150 years ago. Uh, their radar, GPS, there's any number of things that help them to navigate the lakes, but certainly the weather reporting now is much much better we all joke that you know whatever the weather person tells you these days you know maybe it's going to be the case maybe not uh but there's no question it's better than what they had say back during world war one or much less during the civil war uh, or even during world war ii uh, the weather forecasting is much better but like that story uh you know the shipwreck of the lucerne and the apostle islands and the the crew trying to get up into the masts and freezing to death. Um, you know, those stories, those happen on our back doorstep. Yeah. And clearly, clearly weather related. Uh, those ships today have a, a very healthy, and those crews have a very healthy respect. And uh, I think it doesn't take much to, to think that if a 729 foot ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald could disappear 17 miles away from a place like Whitefish Point, if it could disappear so quickly that they couldn't get a distress signal out, this tells you we're dealing with very dangerous waters. Stay tuned. We're going to talk yeah. about the Fitzgerald. Uh, Corey, I've I've been to the UP. I've been to Munising and Escanaba. I used to ski Big Powderhorn when I was a kid. I know what the snow is like up there. Can you describe what a winter is like up there and also how quickly storms can blow in? Wow. Uh, I... I I feel a little guilty because I live four and a half hours uh, south of Whitefish Point, and I did not get the winter they did this year. But I can tell you, I watch the weather almost every day, and boy, did they get pounded. And you know, think of that in 2023 when uh, the you know most of the northern coast of the Upper Peninsula is just getting pounded with snow, which you guys do in Minneapolis a lot. And uh, I can't even imagine it, you know, back then, you know, there, there was a storm in 1872, November 27th, 1872, where uh, uh, two schooner barges broke their toe from a vessel called the John A. Dix. They ran aground just, you know, Bruce said, we have all these shipwrecks out of our, you know, out of our back door. This is one step out of our back door. 
so that these two schooner barges, the, uh, the Jupiter and Saturn, broke their toe, ran aground, and everybody perished. And uh, there's really nothing up there today. But imagine back then, uh, you know, your your ship goes aground, and all of a sudden, you, uh, uh, you, you find yourself at the mercy of the weather, and uh, the the some of the life saving stations in uh, the Coast Guard back then did find bodies frozen to the ground. And there's a, there's a little cemetery uh, right south of the the point called the Whitefish Point Cemetery where you can walk around there and, and see a bunch of crosses with uh, a little uh, grave marker just simply saying unknown because a lot of those guys were unknown. Mm. So that's wow. how fast storms can can creep up on people and and then you know there's all those families and guys that are that are and guys and gals that are just gone wow um guys i read on your website um the really exciting news about some uh shipwreck finds in uh november 1914 storm the steamship cf curtis which was towing the schooner barges selden e marvin and annie m peterson uh, sank to the bottom of the Superior Lake bed, taking the lives of all tw- 28 crew members. Um, it sounds like you have located two of those ships and are trying to find the third. What is it like to search for and find a wreck uh, on or in the, the largest freshwater lake in the world that just so happens to be 1,300 feet deep at its maximum depth? Um, and, you know, how deep was the water where you found the, uh, the Curtis and the Marvin? It's right in the area of 600 feet uh, for both of them. I think the Curtis, Corey, tell me if I'm wrong. The Curtis is about 500, and I think the Marvin's right around 600 feet. Yeah. Yes. Um, what, what what is it? I mean, looking for a shipwreck. What what equipment are you using uh, using to locate a shipwreck? Uh, how how deep can a human diver go um, in underwater exploration on Lake Superior, and how? I mean, I know that I, I've been in Lake Superior. It's cold at the surface. What's it? How cold is it down at the bottom there? You know, it's just above freezing, really. It's uh, and that's that's one reason. Uh, one reason these shipwrecks are in such good condition. One reason, uh, and we say good condition. You know, it depends on when when these ships sink and, and when they hit the bottom. Uh-huh. Very typically, if they were carrying iron ore, which is a heavier cargo, you know, they would hit the bottom harder. And, tended to uh, to break apart more dramatically. But sure. if they were carrying grain or some of these other cargoes that weren't quite as dense, uh, these ships tend to be in excellent condition. Uh, and, and, you know, so much so that without the zebra mussels, without the quagga mussels that some, you know, the lower lakes have, you know, if you look as an example at the shipwrecks that are located down at the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, just as an example, you know, it's fantastic. The visibility is great in those lakes. But those those muscles are all over those wrecks to the point where you really can't you can see the outline and the shape of a wreck. But for us in Lake Superior, let alone those really cold temperatures that we're talking about, but you can still see paint on the decks. You could see a, an ornately carved name board that'll tell you what the name of the ship is. Wow. Uh, you can see glass inside you know, portholes uh, is, a, you know, in a part of maybe one of the cabins or uh, just regular windows. Um, so it, these truly are time capsules uh, that we're looking at. And, and to find them is it can be a pretty tedious process. 
We we have a, uh, a sonar. It's a company out of Yorktown, Virginia, makes them called Marine Sonic Technology. Uh, part of what's a broader company called Atlas North America. But we tow that sonar, and we have what's called a tow fish. It looks like a big torpedo with a long cable uh, that uh, you know strings out behind the, our research vessel, the David Boyd. And uh, then we get into what's called mowing the lawn, or at least we'll jokingly call it that, because you're towing that sonar back and forth, kind of like you would mow your, you know, your grass in your yard until you cover that whole space, or in our case, the area that we're searching in. So uh, we can look out about a half a mile on each side, uh, and we can see, you can see imagery on the bottom of the lake. You can't really, it's not like you're looking at a, you know, a photograph or video of the bottom of the lake, but you're seeing kind of a brightly colored, almost kind of like an orange color screen. And if you see very bright, often, uh, if we're lucky, we'll see a bright target on the bottom that looks, it's, it's a different shade. And then if it's a ship, there'll be a long black shadow that's behind it. Those are, you know, that's one of the best images we see. It's not typically quite that way because you have to, kind of decipher what you're seeing as you tow that sonar. Um, but if we're lucky, we see something that casts a big shadow. We can go back and take a closer look and switch up the frequency and get a better look at what we're, uh, you know, what we might have discovered. Uh, but, but a couple of things I'll say about this. You could be out there for 10 or 12 hours at a time and really not see anything. So it can be kind of boring sometimes, but you're also out on the lake and we're only really going out when the weather is nice. Mm -hmm. We can't really right. use that equipment if the storm is blowing or big waves are out there. So it is a beautiful way to spend a day and you're at work. So we're pretty lucky in that sense. But but we have gone years where we've not found anything. But yet 2021, we found nine shipwrecks and a lot more targets. So we still wow. have to go out and uh, try to uh, you know look at more closely with the sonar and eventually get our ROV, a remotely operated vehicle, uh, like a little robot with high intensity lighting and high definition cameras and try to get a better look at what might be on the bottom of the lake. So it's a it's part of a big process. It's not always exciting, but when we actually do see something and we know we found a shipwreck, there is a heck of a lot of excitement <laughs> on board our, our little research boat. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. You know, you're, you're spending the day on the lake and it makes me think, you know, a, a good day in the office isn't as good as the the, the worst day fishing. <laughs> you guys are combining <laughs> exactly. the two things. Yeah. Um, you talk about how exciting it is to, to, to find a shipwreck. And I just, just reading the headlines last week about it, I, I mean, I thought that was cool as heck. But uh, it, it does beg that the, the philosophical question. I mean, on one hand, you've got this. You found something. It's and something you've been looking for. That's very exciting. But on the other hand... Um, Excuse me. It is a place where lives uh, were lost. So what is the balance? And I, we could probably talk about this, I'm sure, for another hour. What What is the balance between exploration um, and ethics? I mean, you're, you're finding a gravesite. And, and how do you how do you how do you balance that out? Corey, you want me to take this one too, or do you want to take <laughs> it? I, I, I think I, I, I can start on this one. Um, every every single life lost out there is important. Now, save for the Curtis and uh, the Marvin and the Peterson, everybody lost their lives. But it kind of faded into obscurity. 
Um, what we are doing is honoring these people with telling their stories and making sure that everybody knows that these were people that had families that had lives and lost them on the, on the Great Lakes. Um, everybody always, you know, there's a few shipwrecks that everybody uh, remembers, the Fitzgerald being one of them, and that's a very important tragic shipwreck. But so so were the so were the you know the people lost on the Curtis, Marvin, and Peterson. So were the people lost on the Jupiter and Saturn. And so were the people lost on the Atlanta. I could go on and on and on. Every mm-hmm. single one of these people told and had a story that deserves to be told and remembered. So that's uh, that's my answer. You know, and I'll, I'll piggyback off of that, too. And that's a great answer. You know, we we always talk about that. The, every one of these wrecks has its own story. And so ethically speaking, for us, I, I think what we're doing is very important because we are keeping those stories alive. And it's not it's not unheard of for us to have a descendant of a sailor that perished on a Great Lakes shipwreck contact us after we found a wreck and share a little bit of their family history with us, um, you know, after we found the wreck. But but on the other side of the coin, too, speaking of the, you know, perhaps the ethics of searching for shipwrecks, we, we don't take anything off of these wrecks. We document them. So when we find one, we, uh, like I said before, put the ROV down on the wreck. And we, we get a really good look, you know, and unless that ROV accidentally bumps into something, uh, you know, because we, you know, we're not we're not down there uh, with divers at 600 feet or 800 feet. Right. Uh, it's just this little robot. So occasionally it might bang into the side of a hull, a ship or something like that. But we're we're not touching these shipwrecks. We're not taking anything off of them, but we are documenting them uh, to better understand, you know, maybe how shipwreck occurred. Uh, and you will look at historical Newspapers, maybe a, a newspaper from 1914, as some of the shipwrecks we found more recently might tell us one way that is believed that this ship sank. Because in cases like the Curtis and the uh, the Marvin and the Peterson, which these are wrecks we found in recent years, and I think we'll be talking about here in a few minutes, tragically there were, there were no survivors. So there there has been over the you know the decades there's been a lot of speculation about what happened to these shipwrecks. But when we find them, there are little clues that will often tell us uh, what actually happened and maybe help set the record straight or will back up something that has been asserted in a newspaper article from 1914, just as an example. So uh, I think, again, ethically speaking, I think what we're doing is a service. We're keeping those stories alive. We're documenting these wrecks. And in some cases, we're helping to set the historical record straight. That's so well said by both of you. It really is, yeah. Um, I, I also read about uh, Barge 129. Um, can, can you tell us about that shipwreck and discovery? Really, any shipwrecks you want to tell us about is great, but um, I'm, I'm curious about Barge 129. Bruce, you want that one? I can, and then I can briefly <laughs> talk about the Nucleus. Absolutely, sure, yeah. Uh, Barge 129, very interesting wreck, and uh, your neighbor state, Wisconsin, um, I'm going to put a plug in for a museum ship called the Meteor that's in Superior, Wisconsin, uh, that unfortunately, whenever I've gone to visit it, has always been closed uh, for one reason or another. Maybe they saw me coming or something, but uh, Barge 129 was kind of an unusual ship that was 
unique to the Great Lakes. Uh, these ships were all called whalebacks. They were invented by a uh, Scottish immigrant that ended up settling in Duluth, but had a shipyard in Superior. Uh, and he, he built these whalebacks. They were called whalebacks because the way they almost look like submarines hmm. to describe them. They had these sloped sides on them, which was theoretically to allow the water to kind of roll over them and around them. And, uh, and in many cases, like Barge 129, be towed by other steamships. This was pretty common practice. Uh, but, but Barge 129, interesting story. And it, there are some similarities with other shipwrecks that we found, or just even ones we haven't found, but they have, they share a similar story. And in this particular case, Barge 129 is being towed. And that's something that, that you see a lot of. These ships that were being towed were would get in trouble sometimes. But this was 1902 when this particular whaleback went down. It was being towed, headed downbound, uh, loaded with iron ore, uh, being towed by a ship, steamship called the Mauna Loa. And like happened so many times, Barge 129, uh, when this, this storm that they got into uh, caused a strain on the, the tow line, this was an October, October storm that we're talking about, another autumn storm, the tow line, more pressure was being put on it. Uh, they were losing visibility. The Mauna Loa, the captain, I'm sure, was watching Barge 129 and vice versa, but they, they kept losing visibility. But eventually that tow line parted and snapped. The pressure was too great on it. And this was particularly dangerous for a whaleback barge. If it was a schooner barge, like so many of those wooden schooners that were built all over the Great Lakes, they would cut the masts down on them and tow them. It was a more commercially viable way to to, to uh, move cargo. But Barge 129 was different. It didn't have any masts. It didn't have any sails. So that captain and crew on board Barge 129, they were in trouble. And the captain of the Mauna Loa knew this. But for him, in the severity of the storm, and for his crew, because he, he would put his crew in jeopardy by virtue of turning around to try to get that tow line hooked up again. You know, they could get in a lot of trouble in a storm like that, trying to maneuver and trying to maneuver around and, and have those waves hitting them on their side or beam, basically. But the captain knew on the Mauna Loa, the crew of Barge 129 had no chance at all if he didn't turn around uh, and try to get, get that tow line hooked up again. And that's exactly what he did. The Mauna Loa took about an hour to get turned around. They took this big loop. They were all headed downbound, but he took a big loop to try to get behind Barge 129 and then maneuver up beside it with these, think of the wind was howling, these massive waves were pushing these boats around and there were, the snow was coming and going, so visibility was difficult. But an hour later, the Mauna Loa was maneuvering up alongside a Barge 129 and uh, no doubt the crew uh, on both vessels were getting drenched uh, and getting blown around as they were preparing themselves for this process of trying to get that tow line hooked up again. But as the Mauna Loa got closer, uh, a couple of big waves ended up pushing them together. And it probably would have been more like uh, Barge 129 uh, getting pushed up against Mauna Loa. Uh, but the bottom line is both of them smashed together, their hulls smashed together, and the anchor uh, on the Mauna Loa smashed through the hull plates in one area of Barge 129. And that pretty much now instantly Lake Superior is pouring into the holds of Barge 129. And that captain and crew at that point knew, okay, we've only got a few minutes before this ship is going to the bottom. And so they had a lifeboat 
on the back uh, end of the the turret and basically where the pilot house is on on the barge 129 and the, uh, the captain got up there he was lowering the lifeboat pretty small vessel i mean think about this if if you, your ship is in jeopardy, now you're going to get into your open, tiny little lifeboat and try to get over to the steamship that just, you know, you just banged into. Uh, they were fortunate they were able to get that lifeboat uh, launched, but it also, in the process of launching, got damaged and water was coming into that as well. One of the crew uh, of Barge 129 had to put his coat and try to stem that water coming in. The rest of the guys, if they weren't pulling on the oars, were bailing bailing that water out and fortunately for them uh they and obviously not the case for all shipwrecks but in this particular instance the little lifeboat was able to get over to the Mauna Loa the Mauna Loa was obviously right there and uh, they were pulled aboard and those guys were given some hot coffee and dry clothing they were the lucky ones they made it uh but yeah to summarize that shipwreck and soon after a few about five ten minutes I believe after the crew got away from barge 129 it just dove for the bottom and uh, they were fortunate that their tow ship was right there. So that was a happy ending for that crew. How has this not been made into a movie? I, I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's, that's just a harrowing tale. It's, 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 you know, it, and you got all the elements. It's, to, it's cold, it's storming, it's night. It's just, yeah, wow. anyway. Wow. Um, for our listeners, uh, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host is Joe Moravchik. We're talking today with Corey Adkins and Bruce Lynn from the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, located in Whitefish Point, Michigan. Gentlemen, let's talk about the Edmund Fitzgerald. <coughs> the Fitzgerald was a 729-foot-long, 75-foot-wide bulk carrier commissioned in 1958, transporting a cargo of taconite ore, sailing from Superior to the steel mills near Detroit under the direction of Captain Ernest McSorley with a crew of 29 departing on November 9, 1975 in calm seas. But the Fitzgerald doesn't make it to, make it to Detroit she only makes it about as close as your Whitefish Point. She's the largest ship to ever wreck on the Great Lakes. Corey, when was the first sign that there could be trouble on Lake Superior for the Fitzgerald? Was it in a weather report? <clears throat> there is uh, radio chatter between um, uh, the Arthur M. Anderson and the, and the Coast Guard where they were talking that they were they were chatting back and forth via the radio, the Fitzgerald and the Anderson, where uh, the Captain McSorley did uh, did pretty much. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna confer to Bruce on this one. He's a lot. He's better at this than than I. <laughs> but uh, uh, there there was some radio chatter between those two. And um, uh, go ahead, Bruce, and, and I'll, I'll fill in anything. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, Corey, you're headed right. You're headed in the right direction. Um, definitely. There, there, there were the weather reports that were out there, uh, no question. And weather capability, or at least, you know, predicting what storms might do on a lake were better in 1975 than they were, you know, 50 years before that or 100 years before that. But the, the Great Lakes, and we, we touched on this a little bit before, in some ways they create their own microclimate. And this storm, I think, went far worse than anybody would have expected. Uh, the, the Fitzgerald, uh, like at the beginning, we 
stated, you know, it was November the 9th, it departed Superior, Wisconsin, uh, as they were passing the area of Two Harbors, Minnesota, uh, the Arthur M. Anderson was uh, pulling out of that port. And at that point, uh, the captains of the Anderson and the Fitzgerald, and it was Bernie Cooper on the Anderson and Captain McSorley on the Fitzgerald, were, were talking about the weather, as were a lot of these other ships that were out there that night. They knew a big storm was coming. Um, you know, the barometers were dropping. Sky was getting darker. Wind was picking up. Uh, so they decided to take a northern track instead of that southern shipping lane that they would typically take. They kind of hugged that Canadian shoreline to get a little bit of uh, a break uh, from the storm that was coming in. They sailed through that first night. And uh, once they got up around that uh, kind of northeast corner of Lake Superior and the Slate Islands, they started to turn. Uh, you know, we're November 10th at this point. And as they made the turn and they start heading towards Whitefish Bay and that lighthouse at Whitefish Point, you know, they still got a long way to go. But now they were starting to take the full fury of that storm. And uh, they're they're passing uh, Caribou Island, Mitch Picotten Island, uh, uh, those areas, uh, you know, that were in Canadian waters, too. I think that's something everybody should should remember. And the remains, the wreck site of the Edna Fitzgerald is in Canadian waters today. But but as they were closing on Whitefish Bay uh, and they were getting closer and closer there, some of that radio chatter that Corey was alluding to between uh, Captain Cooper on the Anderson and Captain McSorley and the Fitzgerald, or at least the two crews that were in those pilot houses, you know, at one point, McSorley did make a reference that his own ship, the Fitzgerald, had taken some damage. Um, their radars were down. They had a fence rail down. Um, some of the vents, you know, they, they knew they were taking on water. And he did mention a list. And uh, that's pretty important because that's not typically something that a captain of a ship is going to be putting out over the airwaves. So he had gotten further ahead. The Fitzgerald was, was a faster ship. They were both heavily loaded uh, with iron ore, um, but he slowed down a little bit to allow the Anderson to catch up. But again, he didn't have his radar, so he and you could hardly see, you know, there were whiteouts and snowstorms coming and going. So they were relying, the crew on the Fitzgerald and Captain McSorley were relying on the crew of the Anderson and that pilot house, the Anderson, to kind of be their eyes for them because, again, they didn't have the radar. The other thing uh, that wasn't working that night was the lighthouse at Whitefish Point. Hmm. Uh, that particular lighthouse uh, had been automated. Our lighthouse had been automated at that point. Commercial electricity uh, had gone out. Uh, there are generators. Uh, there were generators at that time, but a switch got stuck. So the lighthouse wasn't working that night. And that was something that shows up in that radio chatter. Um, and to make a longer story a little shorter, as they were closing in on Whitefish Point, um, the captain uh, on board the Anderson uh, was asking, or at least the first mate was asking, how the Fitzgerald was doing. And Captain McSorley indicated that, well, they're holding their own. Uh, those were kind of the famous last words, we're holding our own. And once they got just about 17 miles northwest of Whitefish Point, still in Canadian waters at this point, uh, snow, a massive snowstorm came through. The crew in the pilot house on the Anderson had been watching their radar. They'd had the Fitzgerald on their radar screens the whole time. And after that snow squall came through, strangely enough, uh, and there's chatter, as they call it, on their screens, too, they really couldn't see that radar blip, if you want to call it that, 
of the Fitzgerald any longer. And they they were just assuming that their equipment was having some trouble. So they were watching. Uh, and I think, step it back for a moment, I think the crew on the Anderson at that point were probably breathing a little sigh of relief because they had been dealing with some punishing winds. Uh, these winds got up to 90 miles per hour, uh, clocked at 90 miles per hour at the Sulaks. Um, 35 foot waves. Uh, the Anderson didn't even realize that one of their lifeboats had been smashed, or at least the equipment holding it, so they didn't, they wouldn't have been able to launch it. Anyways, they didn't find out until they got to the Sulaks. Um, but I think the crew and the the Anderson at least were breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief. But then something odd was happening. They couldn't see the uh, the Fitzgerald on the radar screen any longer. Uh, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see its lights anymore. And I think there was this state of disbelief probably in the pilot house of the Anderson because they had fought through this that whole night along with the Fitzgerald, uh, you know, and they all thought they were right there almost to the safer waters of Whitefish Bay. Uh, and at that point, Captain Cooper on board the Anderson started getting truly concerned and then started radioing the Coast Guard to say, look, uh, the Fitzgerald appears to be missing. We can't see its lights. We don't have it on radar. We think uh, you, being the Coast Guard, need to, you know, come out and find out what's going on here. The Coast Guard initially, I don't think, really took it seriously. Uh, there was a 16-foot open boat that was missing, and they mentioned that to Cooper and to have his crew be watching for that. And Cooper kept rating them back and saying, look, I think 16-foot boat is one thing, and but a 729-foot freighter is another thing. And uh, he was gravely concerned that that ship might have taken the deep or taken a nosedive. And obviously, we all know now that's exactly what happened. And it wasn't long after that the Coast Guard started a full-scale operation with uh, flights coming out of Traverse City. and uh, But some of their equipment wasn't exactly in a position to do anything about it. Um, and the storm was also that severe. So the Coast Guard did actually ask uh, Captain uh, Cooper on the Anderson we'd like you to turn around and go out and do some searching. And some of the other ships that were in Whitefish Bay, like Corey mentioned before, we see ships out there today. It was the same way that night. Um, they asked some of those other ships to go out. There were some foreign flag vessels, uh, Swedish ships that were heading up the lake. So now the search was on and it wasn't, it wasn't just Coast Guard, but it was also these other ships that were out there that night as well. Was the, uh, so you, Eventually, you have the U.S. Coast Guard that reports on the sinking, has its conclusions about what might have happened. And then you have the Lake Carriers Association that has other conclusions. What are some theories out there that about how she actually sunk? There are a number of theories. Um, the Coast Guard's theory uh, referenced the hatch covers. Uh, maybe they were not, uh, maybe they weren't dogged down properly. So you're um, talking about on the top of the ship, you've got these covers that are over the cargo hold. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. So they open those up. Imagine the Fitzgerald sitting there in Superior, Wisconsin, and, uh, you know, or uh, other ships in, in Duluth and these other different ports and these big chutes would allow the iron ore or whatever the cargo was to to slide down into the hold of the ship itself. And then they would uh, dog down or, you know, affix these uh, hatch covers and tighten them up so the water couldn't get into the holds. 
Um, but but to go back to the theories, there are so many different theories. You know, the Coast Guard came back with theirs. Uh, the Lake Carriers Association had a different theory. Uh, one theory might have been that uh, they hit an uncharted shoal that might have been near Caribou Island, and they were taking on more water than they realized. You know, Captain McSorley made a reference that his pumps were both operating, but the ship was still taking on a list. Right. And then even in more recent years, there have been uh, some subtly different theories that are coming forward that perhaps a hatch crane on deck might have broken loose uh, and damaged some of the topside areas or some of those hatch covers, allowing more water to uh, to get in um, and to, uh, to affect the stability of the ship itself. Uh, there are really strange theories that are out there as well. Uh, there was even a book uh, that was printed a number of years ago that made a reference to a Bermuda Triangle of sorts in the Great Lakes that might have been right up in that area of Lake Superior where so many ships have disappeared and things like that. So so I guess my point being is there's no shortage of theories as to why the Fitzgerald sank. But to, to be conclusive about it, we really can't be. We don't know exactly why that ship sank. Uh, there have been a number of different expeditions that have gone down to look at the wreck site i was going to ask you if you at the uh, great lakes museum of shipwreck historical society have been down there yourself we have yeah absolutely there there have been uh, three different expeditions that the shipwreck society has been involved with uh so there have been a number of government expeditions i guess if you could say put it that way with the navy and the coast guard but there have also been a number of private expeditions including uh Anybody who grew up watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, I think I've got that title correct, but yeah, yeah. Calypso came up into the Great Lakes and they took a look at it and concluded that it broke apart on the surface and sank. But a number of the subsequent expeditions that went down, including those with the Shipwreck Society and entities like National Geographic and the Royal Canadian Navy and Sony Corporation um, came to different theories and perhaps a theory that the, the Fitzgerald had been taking on so much water that it, it clearly was losing stability. And there were three massive waves that hit the Anderson and shortly after uh, would have hit the Fitzgerald and maybe caused her to take a nosedive. Uh, you know, yeah, that's a I read that, too. read that last night. Uh, just terrifying, monstrous waves approaching from the stern that could have pushed the Fitzgerald under bow first. Wow. And these are... Waves that are coming up over the top of the stern and then hitting the pilot house 700 feet later. That is something, Bruce. It's kind of hard to imagine. Uh, and I think maybe, Joe, in a conversation we had yesterday, I mentioned that at Whitefish Point, when visitors are going through the historic buildings and they're reading about these shipwrecks, if it's a fall day, um, and these are days that I know Corey, Corey and I both love, love being up there. When, when that wind is blowing and the waves are crashing in offshore, it makes these stories seem more believable. For it, sure. it, it makes you feel like you can almost better understand what happened uh, to, say, the Fitzgerald or any of these other ships. Yeah. The um, one thing I'll, I'll add to, uh, to the theories is there are a ton of them. We could all sit around a table and talk about them for hours upon hours. But the one thing um, with the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society is we have gotten we do have really good relationships with many of the family members. And in the end, um, I think it was either Ruth Hudson or uh, Cheryl Rosman told to me she was like, what does it matter? 
what does it matter in the end? You know, I lost my dad where Ruth Ross lost her son. Um, she goes, you know, only, <coughs> only God in the lake know what happened that night. And nobody will ever know. I mean, unless somebody invents a time machine, we'll never know. But it yeah. is uh, it is a fascinating shipwreck. And, um, uh, you know, all we can do is, is honor and remember the 29 men. Exactly. And Gordon Lightfoot. Gordon Lightfoot knows also. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you know something about Gordon. He uh, he he came up in 2015 for the 45th anniversary. Yeah, and he did not want it to be about him. No, he wanted it to be about uh, the family members. So he came up on the ninth, November 9th instead of November 10th, and just wanted to talk to the family members without having you know any sort of big media or surrounding him. So he he's a classy guy. And yeah, he did write a heck of a song. I, uh, I I had a chance to see Gordon Lightfoot the summer of 2015, and he stood on stage and talked for not maybe not quite 10 minutes about the Edmund Fitzgerald and how um, that that's not the song that made him famous, but it's the song that most people know of of his. And he um, he's so. It is so important to him that people understand that that the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald should not be connected to the name Gordon Lightfoot. Like it, he wants to keep that that uh, uh, that story going. He wants to, you know, the, the, all that remains is the names, uh, faces, names of the wives and the sons and the daughters. He wants to make it about the families. Um, he is he is a super classy guy when he, when he talks about it. And, and yeah, it's a great song. You know, it really is. And let me, I'd like to throw something in about Gordon Lightfoot. Corey just talked about when he came up in 2015, and, and there were a lot of Fitzgerald family members there that day, the day before we did our annual memorial ceremony that we do uh, for the Fitzgerald each year and her crew. But it was interesting to watch Gordon Lightfoot out there with those Fitzgerald family members. Mm. And it was a very, very sunny day. It was a very nice, kind of unusually warm day. And uh, kind of breezy, but we all walked around the site. You know, we looked at the lighthouse. We looked at some of the buildings, but we also walked out on a big deck that we have that overlooks Whitefish Bay and Lake Superior. And for me, um, being a bystander and just kind of watching, uh, because what was happening is Gordon was connecting with these families. And it was interesting to hear them him, Gordon Lightfoot, wrote the song with those family members that, that he referenced in the song. Uh, and hearing them just talking together, and it was just—it was kind of one of those moments that you just—you don't forget. It was—it was—it uh, was just really interesting. And he's just about the most um, humble guy. He was asking us about our jobs and what mm -hmm. we do. Just—just just a regular guy. It was really kind of a magical thing to watch all of that happening. I haven't been to Whitefish Point. Can't wait to get there. Rich, we should have done this on location. Really, we should have. There's no question about that. <laughs> Corey and Bruce, when you talk about these storms, I can relate. I worked for a long time in Racine County, Wisconsin, right on Lake Michigan. There they have the clanging buoys in the lake. You got the fog warning whistle when that fog rolls in. There's Coast Guard cutters you can watch in action off the, off the coast. It's a fascinating place to live. I know what those storms feel like. I've been on Lake Michigan when, you know, you're out, you start fishing at dawn and in the summer, but then those winds pick up mm -hmm. and you're offshore and you got to get, you got to get back to safe harbor. So I think I have a pretty good feel for what you guys have up there and what you've talked about with the storms rolling in. 
Yeah, the uh, uh, there are times when I have sat on the the beach there at Whitefish Point when the sand has been blowing sideways right into my eyes. Wow. Um, and sometimes to me that that's the best time to sit on the beach because it makes you remember what some of these people have gone through and how many people have lost their lives. And you can just sit back and kind of experience history as it's pelting you in the face. So yeah, it's a it's a magical place, and it's a it's you know it's a great place to visit and experience history. Bruce, as a result of the Fitzgerald wreck, from a policy standpoint, have there been changes to safety protocols on the big bulk carriers? Yeah, I think to a certain degree there have been. Um, you know, we've talked a couple times today about those ships that we'll see in the bay when there's a big storm brewing up on Lake Superior, right. they'll be sitting in Whitefish Bay. I, I think that there's an emphasis now, uh, you know, not that there wasn't before, um, but I think it's more of an emphasis now on maybe waiting out some of these storms. The weather reporting uh, is clearly better. We talked about that. The GPS uh the radar, you know, a lot of the technology has come a long way, but I think the understanding that that 729 foot ship could sink so quickly, I think affected the industry. Um, and I think that there was a realization there that these ships are not unsinkable um, and they are subject to stresses that dramatic weather could put on them. So for us, the most obvious change maybe more than in the past because i i was i've been fortunate that since the early 70s i've been able to spend time up there on lake superior and on whitefish bay i think we probably see more ships now waiting as opposed to just being those heavy weather sailors and ships that would sail right through a storm which back in the day uh you know even captain mcsorley was referenced as a heavy weather sailor meaning that you know, they would just sail through those storms. They'd gotten through all the other ones. They were fine. They would get through this one, too. But but just seeing those ships out there and waiting at a storm, which in some cases we don't even know there is a storm up on the big lake, um, you'll see them waiting. You know something's going on. So I think that's a very obvious sign uh, that, that the weather, at least, is being taken very, very seriously. You know, I've been to the UP. I love the UP. It's beautiful up there. And I've always said it's kind of its own little world up there. And, and, and Upers, you guys are your own, you're sort of your own breed. But, I, you know, the, listening to these stories and, and the guys who, des, who decide that they're going to uh, they're gonna be sailors on the Great Lakes, it's really, it takes a special kind of person to make that decision and to be that, that, that type of sailor, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so a lot of times, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, a, a lot of these these men and women, they really didn't know what their next job would be. So they would go from port to port and some would be on, a, on a, you know, one vessel and some would be on another vessel. They'd go to port and, and maybe switch ships. That's why there's so many unknown graves around the Great Lakes. So it was a tough life. Yes. And, you know, I think it's a tough life today, too, really. It's not it's not tough like those ships, you know, maybe a sailor having to go up the rigging and get the sails set and all that. But if you look at these sailors today, uh, you know, uh, they're away from their families for months on end. Um, uh, 
you know, that's that alone, I think, is probably a, a pretty big difficulty for them. They're they're in many cases dealing with jobs where you're out on the deck of a ship uh, when the all this weather we've been talking about is hitting and you, you have to do your job out there. And that a lot of physical aspects of that work that's really difficult. So I think it does take a special person. Um, and, you know, it's interesting for those of us uh you know, they live in a place, say, like Sault Ste. Marie or, you know, Corey will come up and visit. We'll see these big ships going through the Sioux And sometimes it's fun. You can talk to these sailors. And we've gotten to know some of them, too. Uh, we know one who's a wheelsman uh, on one of the, the big freighters. And it is certainly a different it's a different lifestyle. You're living and working with your fellow crew members. You're away from your families. Um, you're dealing with the vagaries of the weather. Uh, so, yeah, to kind of just add to what you're saying i think it does take a special person to do that work yeah folks you're listening to public policy this week on kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 broadcasting from downtown northfield minnesota i'm rich larson my co-host is joe moravchik we're talking today with Corey adkins and bruce lynn from the uh, uh great lake shipwreck museum located in whitefish point michigan mr moravchik do you have any recovered items from the Edmund Fitzgerald at the museum? I can only imagine the story and plight of the Fitzgerald is a major draw for culture tourists. We, we do, actually. Yeah, we have a number of artifacts, uh, and these are primarily artifacts that have been donated by people that live in the area or um, live across the bay over in Ontario. That in, in, in these cases, these are things that washed up on the shoreline. So that was sort of the, um, you know, the, how can I put it? I mean, these were the, it was the mute testimony to a shipwreck, you know, on November the 11th, 1975, which people, the storm had blown itself out. People were coming up to a flooded, where the parking lot is, a Whitefish Point that was completely flooded, but the water was receding. Uh, people were walking the beaches and finding life jackets, um, there was a fisherman uh, by the name of McDonald that was across the bay who had uh, he and his fish tug had gone out. They were helping with the search and they had found the lifeboats, which you can see now at the Valley Camp. That's a museum ship in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, but just a lot of uh, debris from that shipwreck that, that told a story. Oil, oil splattered life jackets, um, these lifeboats that were just contorted. But when, when people come through the museum today, they'll see some of this you know, wreckage or flotsam and jetsam that had washed up on the shoreline. But they also will see the bell from the Fitzgerald itself. Um, and that is the, the original bell. Uh, it was a uh, combined expedition between the Royal Canadian Navy, the National Geographic Society, Sony Corporation, and the Shipwreck Society to recover the bell as a, uh, a memorial, really, more than anything else that would be on exhibit inside the museum. Uh, we ring that bell uh, once a year. We ring it 30 times. That's 29 times for each sailor on the Fitzgerald, but a 30th time for all sailors lost on the Great Lakes. And really, it's kind of become this artifact that is a uh, it has become almost like a an object of pilgrimage for people to come who know about the wreck, uh, want to learn more about the wreck, and they come and people. Even as we're closing the museum on some days, we'll just be, I won't say they're begging to get inside, mm. but they really, really want to get inside the museum so they can see the bell. People drive from all over to see it. So yeah. in addition to some of those smaller items, 
uh, the bell itself is really the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Years, years ago, uh, I was, uh, you know, when I worked at the CBS affiliate, I was shooting a, a documentary and I think it was the 30th anniversary of the Fitzgerald. And it was about six o'clock at night. I was wrapping up interviews and this little kid, eight years old, his name was Drayton Blackgrove, bust through the door. And he just wanted to see the bell of the Fitzgerald. He came right up to it. And he goes, I'm sitting next to the actual bell of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I'll never forget that because every time you, I, I walk in the museum, I like to sit right behind it and see the reactions from people. And it's mostly kids that are amazed by that bell. So it, it's, uh, it, it's something very special. Yeah. That's got to be worth the, the price of admission just right there. Guys, how are operations at the Shipwreck Historical Society funded? How do you get your money? And if people want to donate, how can they give you money? Sure, yeah. So and I think this surprises people sometimes. We're not a state of Michigan organization or an entity. We, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, and we're also not federal uh, either. Uh, people get confused when they drive up to Whitefish Point because they'll see signs that reference uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, and Sini National Wildlife Refuge has property up there. But they'll also see references to Michigan Audubon. There's a bird observatory through Whitefish Point uh, as well. Uh, but we are a private nonprofit. So the vast majority of our uh, operating uh, revenue comes from our ticket sales. So when you, you buy that ticket to come through the museum or if you buy a family ticket or what have you, when you bring your family all that money gets reinvested. Um, you know, it keeps the lights on. It allows us to uh, put up new exhibits. Uh, we, we do get a fair number of grants as well. We have a development officer. And so we will apply for a number of grants each year. And our donor base and our membership is incredible. We have just an, an awesome, and I don't, I don't use that term a lot. Corey will tell you that. But <laughs> we, we have an awesome group of, of members, our membership uh, and our donors. We have people that are just passionate about this subject matter and uh, helping us to keep, you know, these stories alive, which we've talked about so much. But but yeah, the, the bulk of it comes through when people buy those tickets to visit the museum. We, we have a museum store as well, um, and that has become very popular. It's almost become like a destination unto itself where we sell uh, tons of different books, on shipwrecks in the Great Lakes literature. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen anybody wearing a sweatshirt that might say Whitefish Point or Edmund Fitzgerald, chances are they, they ended up buying that from us. Um, My best friend from high school has one. <laughs> big, <laughs> Is that big, right? Big, right? Yes, big fan of the museum. Uh, loves what you do there. Frequent visitor. So, yeah. That's we love those frequent visitors. We, we, we try to uh, strike a balance as well. We, we don't want to go over the top on selling things that say Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, but at the same time, people ask for more things, more, you know, artwork, more books. And there's no shortage of books. There were three last year alone that were published related to the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, there's any number of requests that we'll get from people for objects that have a reference to the Fitzgerald that they can take home. But, but between those different areas, the, the attendance, our store revenue, um, 
you know, different grants and our donors and membership. Those are those are the primary ways that we as a, a relatively small nonprofit are able to operate. Well, you wouldn't be I mean, you're not the only uh, uh, people out there meeting the demand. There is a lot of demand for information and just just whatever about the Edmund Fitzgerald. I mean, you can't go to Duluth without and throw a rock without finding a picture of, of the Edmund Fitzgerald somewhere. But you guys are providing a service by uh, by, by meeting that demand and offering that kind of stuff. So, guys, uh, we like to give our guests the final word on this program. Um, what are some concluding thoughts? What, what did we miss? What should we, uh, uh, what should we have talked about? What would you like to add to our discussion about the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum and uh, the H- Shipwreck Historical Society? I can start, Bruce. Um, we, I, I was a board member there since 2006, and I got hired as the, the content communications director last year. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to take this job was because of the stories and because of the history and because of how important that is, not only to me, but the history of this country. And when you walk out on to our beach, you know, after you go through the museum and you, you see all those stories and you walk out onto our beach and look out onto that lake, it's 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 amazing to be able to feel that that passion and you know sometimes there's sadness sometimes there's happiness but to me that's why people come to our our you know to whitefish point is to experience all of that and uh to me it's it's an it's important history to tell it's in history that we should not forget and uh we, we got that we pretty much got that covered as much as we possibly can. We're going to do the best job we can moving forward. Bruce, you want to add anything? Sure. Yeah. That's very well put Corey. I think he hit on it. Those stories and keeping those human stories alive of these, uh, the people that came before us. And that's anything from the shipwrecks to, you know, think of those lighthouse keepers that were at these remote light stations all over the great lakes or the East and West coast. But in our case, we're, telling a very, uh, you know, focused story on those keepers or Whitefish Point. So even the, the life-saving service, which most people, at least from whenever I'm covering a, a shift at the at our one of our historic buildings, we talk about the life-saving service in our surf boat house. I'm amazed at how many people have never heard of it. It's a predecessor to the U.S. Coast Guard. But, boy, I tell you, these guys, the work, the job they had, you know, if you think of a storm, again, bad enough to sink a ship or drive a ship aground, and now you've got to go as a life-saving service crew member uh, and launch an open boat to try to get the crew off before the ship breaks up. These are dramatic stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're stories that just aren't told in, in a lot of places. So we want to keep those stories alive, you know, as well as the Coast Guard uh, lifeboat stations that were up there, at least the one that was at Whitefish Point. So I think the last thing I would say is uh, if you want to learn more about the Shipwreck Museum and the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. We do have a website. It's very new. We uh, actually just put it up uh, this last week. We replaced our other one that had been there forever, it felt like, but it's shipwreckmuseum.com. So shipwreckmuseum.com is our website. You'll see a lot of information about new things that we have happening at Whitefish Point. And we have a a lot of new things. They're not all exhibits. Um, It's not all that kind of new stuff, but such things as our hours of operation are changing this year. We're going to be open from nine to five. Our entire parking lot is getting resurfaced this year, completely replaced. And that's a project that we're 
working with the Michigan Department of Transportation and the Eastern Federal Highway Administration, as well as our local road commission, and then the uh, partnering landowners up at Whitefish Point. So this is a, this thing has been in the works for nearly a decade. It's finally going to happen. We've got a new exhibit on a shipwreck called the A.A. Parker that, with luck, uh, that's going to be going in as well. We've had a couple of delays over the years on that, but that's going to be hopefully going in this year. And then a uh, old 1940s-era U.S. Coast Guard motor lifeboat. That's another long-term project that is just wrapping up, and that's hopefully going to be on exhibit this year, too. So there's there's a lot of new things happening. And look at shipwreckmuseum.com, and, and if you want to become a member, uh, we'll really keep you in the loop on all this stuff. And that information is on the website as well. That's kind of my commercial break, I guess. I there. <laughs> Does the website cover your underwater exploration and research, too, some of the the new headlines out there about what, about what you're finding? It does. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely does. Great. All right. Bruce, you've also, you've got a book uh, called The the, uh, the Legend Lives On with co-author Chris Winters. Where can uh, our listeners find a copy of that? Well, unfortunately, you can't at this moment unless you pay a lot of money for it in a used copy. We just <laughs> ran out last year. Oh. Uh, and so we're we're reprinting it. But I, I'm not sure. Uh, there have been some challenges, which I think probably you and a lot of your listeners are aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, paper, printers. Um, but the other thing is we're, we're, we're updating it, too. Um, since that time, we have, we have received a lot of donations. And, and we have become a repository of sorts for donations related to the Fitzgerald. Uh, at least once, two, three times a year we'll have someone contact us and say, hey, I was going through an old box, shoebox full of slides. And uh, there was a slide I found that was from 1972. And my gosh, it's the Edmund Fitzgerald. Would you like to have this slide? Or, or, you know, photographs, uh, you know, uh, not much in the way of artifacts related to Fitzgerald being donated. um, But there are a lot of things coming our way. So tying it back into the book, a lot of these images that have been donated, uh, we're going to incorporate uh, some of the the more interesting and unique ones we're going to be incorporating into the book. So we're updating it and we are going to republish it, but I can't tell you exactly uh, when that's going to happen. But when it does, we're going to have a, we'll have a press release and we'll have a big, um, it'll be all over our website. So we'll let the world know about it. Rich at KYMNradio.net. Make sure I'm on that uh I'm on that press release list. Okay. <laughs> you got it. All right. This has been another great and interesting hour of radio, but we got to wrap it up here. Corey Adkins and Bruce Lynn of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum and the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Thank you for being a part of public policy this week. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Joe Moravchik. Uh Gentlemen, yeah, I, wanna, I also want to thank you for taking your time. Uh, and, and we've gone way over time with this show, so I'm, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share your knowledge and your experience with our listeners. And you, you both have great stories, and we really, really appreciate it. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about po- public policy challenges and opportunities We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull up the podcast of each program here on KYMN or on your favorite podcast service. Just look for the Public Policy This Week logo. And be sure to join us again next week for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. 
Have an outstanding Friday afternoon and a superb weekend, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.